1 John 3, beginning in verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given to us. Follow your heart. Believe in yourself. Dig down deep. You will find you are enough. These popular feel-good sayings contain the same basic message. Trust your heart. And yet God who created us and the one who knows us most deeply, more fully than we know ourselves, tells us something differently. He alone understands the workings of our hearts and can guide us by the Spirit and his trustworthy word. He knows how deeply our sin nature has affected and infected us, such that it leaves our hearts untrustworthy. And so we need something that is more trustworthy, more perfect, more foolproof or fail-safe, and that is the Word of God. The prophet Jeremiah said, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Thankfully, the next verse answers that question. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And so the prophet says, Who can understand the heart of man? The heart that at at its base nature is deceitful. And yet the Lord says, I search the heart. I test the mind. The Lord knows. The Lord knows our hearts. He knows the errors that our heart embraces. He knows the thoughts that our heart produces. And he helps us and guides us and corrects us through his word. Believers in the past have always understood the untrustworthiness of the human heart. So instead of believing in themselves and following their heart, they trusted God. They trusted God to give them a new heart and then to have him help them interpret the workings of their heart, to interpret the thoughts and the feelings of their heart biblically. And we need to learn to do the same thing. The thoughts, the feelings that are produced by this heart that is still tainted by the sin nature needs the word of God to interpret, to clarify what is godly, what is not, what comes from above, what comes from below, what is of the flesh, what is of the spirit. God's word helps us. 
For example, David prayed in Psalm 139, Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Then he goes on to talk about the different ways that the Lord is acquainted with him in his life. And then he comes toward the end and he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. That ought to be our prayer. We ought to be saying, Lord, search my heart. Show me what my thoughts are and what thoughts line up with your word and what don't and need to be rejected. What what feelings and thoughts need to be embraced as being good and godly? And what are those that we need to reject? There's a real sense in which the Apostle John is writing the same message to us this morning, but in regard to assurance of salvation. Now, you may remember that that is the main purpose of this letter. If you turn right in your Bible to chapter 5, I'll show you these verses again. I'm committed that by the time we get done with this series, you're going to know these verses, 1 John 5. And if you already know them, well, then there will be a blessed repetition for you. But 1 John chapter 5 and verse 10, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. Now, just stop there for a second, because if you remember the context that John is writing to believers who are being affected by false teachers, primarily Gnostics, who believed that the spirit of man is good and the body is evil, and so they rejected that the Son of God could possibly be a man. So they rejected the incarnation, which is what we celebrate every December. And we'll get more into that in chapter 4 as he concentrates on how necessary it is for our salvation that we embrace a full doctrine of Christ, which includes that he, the eternal Son of God, broke into earth history and became a man. So he's saying that if you deny what God's Word says about the Son of God, then you have not believed in the testimony that God himself has given. You're saying, God, I disagree with you. You don't know who your son is. You don't know anything about your son. If you reject biblical doctrine, that's what happens. But then he goes on in verse 11, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. This is John's purpose in writing. He wants us to know that we have eternal life. Some of you are like me in that you were raised in a works religion that could never give you that assurance that that there was always another good work to do for you to somehow maybe get close to heaven. And yet God's word gives us much better news than that. And that is that the Son of God 
Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. He has paid the price for our sins. He has risen from the dead, and he now offers eternal life to those who will come to him in repentant faith. And God wants us to know this. God doesn't want us to live our lives in doubt and in wondering if it's a maybe at the end of our life. Maybe when we die, we go to be with God. He wants us to know, and he's given us the tools in his word for us to know this. So essentially what John is saying here in verses 19 to 24 of chapter 3 is this. Don't trust what your heart tells you. Trust God instead. Trust God's word. And if we struggle with assurance of salvation, it, it is unhelpful to listen to our heart because our heart varies from day to day. We have to have something that is more stable, that is more secure, that is unchanging. And that, of course, is God's word. And so we need to listen to the word of God and trust its authority. God's word has authority over our heart. But we live in a world in which uh, we are hear this message just everywhere. Almost every movie, TV show, uh, even popular song, you hear this same message. Follow your heart. Trust yourself. Believe in yourself. And over and over, God's word says, your heart is not trustworthy. You need to trust me instead. I'm the only one who really knows your heart. And I will guide you by my spirit through my word. And so we have to biblically evaluate our relationship with God based upon his word. We also need to biblically evaluate our relationship to other believers. Because in, remember, the context here is that we're still dealing with this big love test that he's given to us in regard to uh, that authentic saving faith leads to a fundamental change in, the, in our nature, whereby then we have a love for one another as believers. We love believers that we didn't love before because God has changed our heart and he is changing our heart. And that brings us then to our big idea, which is this. When our heart condemns us, our progress in obedience and love reassures our faith. So again, as I've said more times than uh, I remember, and perhaps you're getting sick of me saying it, but I won't stop, and that is that our assurance of salvation does not come merely from being able to look back in the past at an event, at a moment in which you prayed a prayer or walked an aisle or signed a card or something like that. Those things are helpful if, if God so has worked in your heart and you have that, that memory and that's a precious memory to you and you know that that's when your life in Christ began. That's wonderful, but that still isn't the bottom line basis of your assurance. At least it ought not to be. It ought to be instead, what is God doing in my life now, today? How has he changed me since that moment until now? How am I different? How am I more like Christ than I was before? Do I have the life of God within my soul? And is there evidence of that? Or have I just tacked Jesus onto the other things that I believe and I've just become 
a different kind of religious person. And so when our heart condemns us, our progress in obedience and love reassures our faith. That's what John is saying. When we are convicted by the Holy Spirit about our sin and our heart condemns us, where do we go for the assurance of our salvation? We need to go to God's word and we need to go to the evidences of the Spirit at work in our lives. And he's been talking about obedience to his word and love for other believers. So in today's passage, the apostle encourages our growth in assurance by shedding light on four ways to speak biblical truth to ourselves. Number one, realize that scripture is more trustworthy than the thoughts and doubts of your heart. Look at verse 19. By this we shall know. By what? Well, verse 18. By love in action. That's how, that's one of the ways that God assures us that we belong to Him, that we have this new, strange, supernatural affection for other believers that can't really be dis- explained fully. It's, it's a work of the Holy Spirit. And by this we shall know or, or realize in experience, that's what the word means, that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. So God, in, through his truth, he reassures our heart before him. I love the wording of the New American Standard in verse 19. It says this, We will know by this that we are of the truth and will set our heart at ease before him. I love that picture. That as our heart is is sometimes filled with doubts and, and our conscience condemns us, God puts our heart at ease through the truth of his word. We rest in his promises, not the perceptions of our hearts. God is greater than our heart. That's a really significant statement, verse 20. Complete opposite of what our culture says to us. God is greater than our heart. God has authority for the decision over the decisions that we make, not following our heart. God has authority over our heart. God has the authority to tell our heart what to believe and how to think. Proverbs 17.3 says, The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. The Lord is the one who tests our heart. How does he do this? How can the Holy Spirit help us to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Well, it is through the ministry of the Word of God. It is by being here this morning under the teaching of the Word of God. It's by being in the Word of God yourself throughout the week. It's by hearing, receiving, meditating, being instructed by the Word of God. And that's how the Spirit teaches you. 
This is what Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and, listen, discerning the thoughts and intentions of our heart. See, we think in our depravity and in our flesh that our heart knows what's best. And yet God's word actually has the authority to show us what our motives are. Because we all operate based upon desires of our hearts or, or motives. And sometimes we don't even know fully what our motives are. And that's why we need God's word to show us, okay, uh, Paul, no, that, that, that's not the right motive. That's actually self-centered, what you're thinking right now. And, and God's word does that for us. The Holy Spirit does that through the word. And so when the spirit convicts us of sin, it's possible for our consciences to become so overwhelmed that we become self-condemning. Have you ever found yourself there as a believer? Our consciences can condemn us. And if we stay there, instead of letting that serve as a prompt to go to the truth, we will become overwhelmed and become self-condemning. On top of this, Satan enjoys accusing us. He, he just loves to do that. So we have to turn to the promises of Scripture and choose to believe its truth above what our heart tells us. Again, God's word has authority over our heart. Warren Wearsby writes this, A condemning heart is one that robs a believer of peace. An accusing conscience is another way to describe it. Sometimes the heart accuses us wrongly because it is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The answer to that question is God knows the heart. No Christian should treat sin lightly, but no Christian should be harder on himself than God is. There is a morbid kind of self-examination and self-condemnation that is not spiritual. We can sometimes become morbid in our self-examination or introspection to the point where we actually rob God of glory because he has said, you have freedom in Christ, and I want you to enjoy the freedom that you have in Christ. So when our conscience condemns us and Satan accuses us, we have to go back to the promises of God's word. And there are so many but let me just give you a few that we should meditate on. If, if we are trusting in Jesus as our Savior, as our Lord, as the one who purchased our salvation for us, then the Spirit of God has placed us into an inseparable relationship with God. We are in union with Christ. If we confess our sins to God, then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
If we have been justified by faith, then we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those are the kinds of truths that we speak back to our hearts when they condemn us. The conscience is a gift from God. And, and when it is troubled by sin, then its role is to move us to repentance and confession so that we may experience full cleansing. We're not to stay camped out in that convicted, condemned conscience. We're to move from that to the freedom and the hope that we have in Christ. But if the conscience is oversensitive or wrongly informed or ill-taught, then it needs to be retrained by Scripture. This has been a lifetime process for me as a believer. And perhaps it's been that way for you too, because when you're raised in a works religion, your conscience is trained to think certain ways about certain things. And you need God's word to just clean house, <laughs> sweep out the old, bring in a new way of thinking to be retrained by Scripture. This is all part of the sanctification process. We renew our minds with Scripture, and as we walk in obedience to God's word, then we are transformed into the image of Christ. So God's word is where we turn when our hearts condemn us. But there's a second way to speak biblical truth to yourself. Number two, rest in the assurance of answered prayer. Verse 21, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Now, verse 21 reminds me of Hebrews 10, where it says that when we come to Christ and, and we believe what he has actually done for us in the cleansing of his blood, his blood cleanses even our consciences, fully cleanses us from sin. And so then he goes on to say, let us boldly with confidence come before the throne of God. Same same thought here. And that then leads to, to prayer because in confidence we come to the throne of God and we lay our needs before him. And whatever we ask, verse 22, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. So John is saying that God encourages our growth in assurance through answered prayer if our heart does not condemn us. That is, if our faith is based on God's truth instead of the feelings of our heart, then we can confidently come before God's throne and he hears us. Jesus says it this way in John 16, until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. But what does it mean to ask in Jesus' name? Does it mean that now that we're believers, that's, that's just the kind of the, the caboose 
at the end of all of our prayers? Or is it something more? Well, it is a lot more. Because when the Bible speaks of the name of Christ or even the name of God, it's talking not about a title, not about a a word, but it's speaking of his nature, his character, all that he is. So when Jesus says, ask anything in my name, he's saying, when you come to me and you ask what is according to my character and nature and in keeping with what I love to do, then you can be assured that I hear you. God hears you. To pray in Jesus' name means to ask according to his nature, but also it means to to accept his decision as to how he answers. It means to submit to his lordship. God is not an indulgent parent who always answers our prayers exactly the way we want him to answer them. Many times he says yes, but many times he says no. Many times he says wait. Many times he says yes, but not now, later. God is the one who's sovereign over the answer to our prayers. Uh, Look at chapter 5 again, because it goes on from where we left off a moment ago. In verse 14 of chapter 5, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, according to his will, you might want to underline that phrase and circle the word his. Because John is clarifying for us that that when he says, when you pray anything in Jesus' name, God is going to answer you, it doesn't mean that God gives you exactly what you want because your heart may not be asking for the right thing. Sometimes we think we know what's best for us, don't we? But we don't always know what's best for us. Just as our our children, as they're young and they're growing up, they ask us for things that we know as parents not what's best for them. Or maybe it's not the right time. God is an infinitely perfect parent, and he always knows what's best. So we are to ask according to his will, not according to our will. His will. But there are many in the church, the professing Christian church today, that teach that that you should name it and claim it and ask God for what you want him to do, and if he doesn't do it, then it's your fault. You don't have enough faith, or you don't have the right kind of faith. That's not what John is saying. John is saying that there is a humility of heart and an acceptance in our will. When we come to God and we pray, we are accepting whatever answer he chooses to give. That's the heart that he wants to see from us. Verse 15, And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Well, what are the requests? The requests are defined in verse 14, that which is according to his will. 
And that's why there are so many times in our lives when we pray for something very specific because we want it and we believe that that God would be pleased to give it to us, and yet we say, but not my will. Your will be done. Just like Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's a really hard place to come to in our Christian life. Where there is something we want to see God do so badly, and we know it agrees with his heart, Maybe it's the salvation of a loved one. And to come to that place where you beg and plead with God, but your will also surrenders. Whatever your will is, Lord, may your will be done. That's the heart that we are to have when we pray. We ask God. We pray with faith but it's a submissive faith. It's not a rebellious faith that says, God, you have to do what I'm asking of you, and if you don't do it, then I will stop following you, or whatever else someone might say to God. By the way, don't threaten God ever. It's not a good idea. And don't try and make bargains with God. God just isn't a bargain maker. He wants us to come to him with humility and faith. Years ago, Johnny Erickson Tata was interviewed about her lifetime of suffering as a quadriplegic, and one question was posed to her this way. We've heard you say you prayed in the past to be able to walk again, to be able to be free of your wheelchair, and the answer from God has been no. What can we learn from that? Johnny answers, Sometimes God's best answers to prayer are no, because if indeed we received everything that we prayed for, all our wants and wishes and heart's desires, I just don't think it would be God's best for our life. Let me share with you a quick story. I remember when I was in the hospital many, many years ago, I used to imagine myself in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, lying at the pool of Bethesda, where all the other disabled, sick, and lame were asking Jesus to heal them. I used to picture myself there pleading with the Lord not to forget me. Don't pass me by, Lord. Here I am. Heal me. As many times as I prayed when I was in the hospital and read John, chapter 5, my hands and my feet never got the message. I never got healed. Well, many years later, my husband Ken and I had a chance to visit Israel, and we spent a whole day touring Jerusalem. It was late in the afternoon when we arrived at the Pool of Bethesda, and as soon as I saw those old ruins, I turned to Ken and said, Ken, you won't believe it. I remember decades ago when I was in the hospital, I used to picture myself here, And I used to imagine myself asking God to heal me, and he never did. But you know what? I'm so glad God didn't because the answer no to a prayer for healing has meant a more urgent leaning upon him every day, a more vibrant hope for heaven, a deeper sense of prayer, a more energetic love for his word. 
It's fostered my friendships, deepened my concern and compassion for others who hurt. It's helped me start this ministry of Johnny and Friends to other people with disabilities. Johnny goes on, I could go on and on recounting all the glorious good things that have happened in my life and in the life of others, all because God said no to an answer to prayer. It wasn't until I was sitting there, leaning on the guardrail and looking at the ruins of the pool of Bethesda a few years ago that I realized how wonderful it is that God sometimes says no. God knows what's best for us. We don't. Our hearts don't always know what's best. And that's why we trust God over our heart. God is sovereign over how he answers our prayers. Sometimes we receive his answers in our lifetime on this earth, and other times we wait until glory. I mean, just think of, of the subject of physical healing itself. God has not promised to always heal us in this life. Sometimes he does, and we give him honor and praise, and sometimes he doesn't, and we should still give him honor and praise. But you know what we can believe and trust in as believers is that there is coming a day in which every believer in Christ will be fully healed in both body, soul, and spirit when we are before him in his presence, when we receive our glorified bodies that have no flaws and no weaknesses anymore. God's promised that. But when it happens, well, we don't know about this life, but we do know in the future. And that's why we look to the things unseen, not to the things that are seen. And that's how our faith is encouraged and nurtured. There's a third truth to speak to ourselves. That is, remember the connection between saving faith and the fruit of love. Verse 23, And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. We don't often think of the gospel as a commandment, but it is. John says it right here. This is his commandment that we believe. And, and in this verse, John is summarizing for us quite a number of passages that we've already studied in this letter And so John is reminding us here that God commands us to believe in the name of the Son of God, to believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and our Savior, to believe that he is the one and only way to eternal life. This saving faith, then, John says, results in a transformed life. It shifts the fundamental posture of our heart toward God and toward others. 
something changes. Specifically, when it comes to horizontal love, specifically in relation to other believers. I think that's interesting because I think if we're honest with ourselves, uh, we would admit that it's, it's easier to love strangers than it is to love the people that we are closest to. It's easier to go out of our way to help people outside of our lives, outside of our families, people who don't know what we are really like morning to night. We can, we can go in and make our little splash or big splash and then walk away feeling like, okay, we've done mercy work for God. But is that really where the true test of love happens? Or as J. Vernon McGee used to say, is that where the rubber meets the road? Isn't it really more in our closer relationships with one another where we actually show our true selves? What we're actually like? It can be a deeper challenge to love those who know us best, to show love and grace and mercy toward those closest to us to those who see all of our warts, that can sometimes be a bigger challenge, right? It's the same in the family of God. It's sometimes easier to love people who are out there on the mission field than it is to love one another, to humble ourselves right here and love one another. We sometimes have a false measure of spirituality. There are ways in which we have glorified certain kinds of ministry. And, oh, that's, that's, that's the really spiritual Christians. They're doing that. And yet, what if John would say, I think you're a bit off, and that the ones who are actually really spiritual are the ones who are actually loving one another as Christ loves, sacrificially. That love word there is agape. It's that sacrificial love. It's we here, the members of the family of Cornerstone, sacrificially loving one another. It's not the one who does all the dramatic stuff that we see who is most spiritual, but the one who becomes the servant of all. He or she, Jesus says, will be the greatest in the kingdom. It's not necessarily the one who broadcasts all of their ministry over social media, night and day, that is the most spiritual. Perhaps we're going to be extremely surprised when we get to heaven. I think we are. I think we're going to be surprised by who are the greatest in the kingdom. And it's not going to be those who were ultra-popular and celebrity Christians and, and all those who made a big splash. It might be a widow who prayed night and day for God's church. 
completely on the scene. We don't know. That's a good thing we don't know, because if we did know, then we'd say, well, I'm going to sign up for that one. Humble love for other believers is one evidence of genuine salvation. That's one of the big lessons that John is teaching us in his letter. Then there's a fourth truth, verse 24. Remain in fellowship with Christ by obeying the word and relying on the Spirit. The only sure way to abide in Christ is by abiding in his word. And so here again we see this in verse 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God. You want to know how to abide in God? You want to know how to abide in Christ? Then keep walking in his way. Keep walking according to his word. It's, it's not something mystical. It's something that is pretty plain on the pages of Scripture. John echoes Jesus, who said, By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, Jesus is not saying that when we are disobedient, he stops loving us. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about a fellowship, a closeness and intimacy of fellowship. That if we want to abide in his love in a very close way, we walk according to his word. We listen to what he says, and we follow it. He abides in us, John says, by the Spirit whom he has given us. And so that's how we can say with Paul in Colossians, Christ in us, the hope of glory. Why? Because it's the Spirit of Christ that indwells us. Christ himself is bodily at the right hand of God. By his Spirit whom he sent to us, he guides us and governs our hearts. The Spirit of God regenerates us, causes us to be born again, to be made new through the gospel. The Spirit indwells us and empowers us to love one another, to serve one another. The Spirit enlightens our mind. He illuminates the scriptures so that we understand them. The Spirit convicts us of sin and empowers us to walk in the obedience of faith. And the Spirit assures us that we belong to Christ. Romans 8 says that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are adopted children of God. The Spirit of God living within us communicates with our human spirit, assuring us that we belong to Christ. What a beautiful ministry of the Holy Spirit this is for us. We're not on our own to somehow conjure up an assurance of salvation. This is the work of the Holy Spirit through God's Word. So by speaking these truths to ourselves, we grow in the assurance of our salvation. I found the following words from John MacArthur really edifying to my spirit. 
He writes, Those who have been justified by faith are at peace with God, Romans 5.1, and enjoy the peace of God, Philippians 4. Nevertheless, a believer may experience unnecessary guilt as his heart condemns him. But there is a higher court than the human heart, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. If he has declared believers righteous in Christ, then they are righteous. Thus Paul wrote, there is, there, now, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And no one can ever separate them from the saving love of God. He sees believers' greatest, most profound failures, and he knows far more about their weaknesses than even their consciences do. Yet God has forgiven those who by faith in Christ have been adopted into his family. Moreover, he is at work in their hearts, continuing to cleanse them from the sin that still lingers there. He looks beyond the remaining sin and sees the holy affections that he has planted in them that demonstrate the transformed natures of his children. Therefore, even when overwhelmed by their sinfulness, believers can say with Peter, Lord, you know all things, and you know that I love you. What a wonderful assurance from God's word for our hearts. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are greater than our hearts. Thank you for bringing that truth to our minds this morning through the writing of John. Thank you that the Holy Spirit wrote this letter through John, that he was obedient, and you communicated your truth for us to even have this very moment this morning. And Father, we have times in our lives where our consciences are disturbed, and rightly so, for we have sinned and the conscience should drive us to repent, to confess, to turn away, and to chase after you in obedience. There are also times, Lord, when our consciences wrongly accuse us because our hearts do not know all things. So either way, Lord, I pray that when we experience these disturbing thoughts and feelings and confusion in our hearts, that we will run to you and your word, and we will remind ourselves of what you say about us, that if we have come to repentant faith in Jesus, then we have already been declared righteous by you. We have a righteous standing before you. Our sins have been forgiven. We've been clothed in the white, pure righteousness of Jesus. And one day, Lord, we're looking forward to being with him when we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. In the meantime, Father, cause us to be faithful, to walk with you, to trust you, to trust your word rather than our hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.